I'm John Ellis. And I'm Rebecca Darst. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast. Every Monday through Thursday afternoon, we bring you news items from three major storylines disrupting modern life, a world in disarray, the financialization of everything, and advances in science and technology. And sometimes we talk politics. Today, we have three news items plus an interview. First, China has stepped up its incursions into Taiwanese airspace in recent days. We're talking about near-daily forays, including its biggest one ever just last week. That has Taiwan, the U.S., and its allies in the region worried about and planning for a potential attack. Then, the Supreme Court seems skeptical of the NCAA's arguments against increased benefits for student-athletes. A decision isn't likely until June, but that doesn't mean you and I can't talk about it now in connection with March Madness and the Final Four is playing this weekend. Lastly, for our news items, mergers and acquisitions are flying high. We look at the first quarter's deal-making numbers around the world, which are greater than they've been since 1980. After that, we hear from New York Times media columnist Ben Smith, an old friend, about the New York Times itself and, of course, free speech in the era of social media. And as usual, we'll close with important headlines from the world of science and tech. Let's get to the news items. First up in our World in Disarray storyline, China's saber-rattling in the South China Sea is getting louder. Last week, Beijing made its biggest ever incursion into Taiwanese airspace with 20 warplanes. And on Monday, both Taiwan and Japan reported similar forays, which the Financial Times describes as the first simultaneous announcement from the two nations. China, of course, claims Taiwan as its own. These escalations raise the question, will China actually strike? And what can the U.S. do about it? John, what will the U.S. do about it if something like this happens? I don't know. I'm I'm reasonably certain that there will be some kind of major moment on Taiwan. I just can't quite figure out what it will be. But I think we'll have our Cuban Missile Crisis in year one of the Biden administration. You think so? Year one of the Biden administration will bring about a Cuban Missile Crisis moment with China over Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not about nukes, but when we look back and when we read the New York Times year in review at the Mm -hmm. end of this year, I think one of the topics will be the Taiwan crisis. That's a world in disarray moment. Indeed. But the U.S. is scrambling to put together some kind of military umbrella and diplomatic alliance that can Mm -hmm. forestall, I think they hope, a Chinese invasion or a Chinese takeover of Taiwan. You know, probably the biggest mistake of the Trump administration's early years was withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Sure, yeah. Which was a trade agreement, obviously, that had been negotiated by Presidents Bush and Obama, but It also could easily have been the vehicle for a military alliance. And so it's left the Biden administration sort of scrambling to catch up. And uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're we're just about to officially lose the war in Afghanistan. And the leadership in Beijing reads the newspapers. And I think they accurately think that the U.S. is not going to risk any more men, women, or treasure defending faraway places. So just to sort of clarify for the listeners, the U.S. at present has a policy of strategic ambiguity vis-a-vis Taiwan. I know that opinions, yes, strategic ambiguity. Flexibility. That's right. Oh, okay. Flexibility. And now it should be strategic strategic certainty. Well, what do you think? Because that really is, opinions differ on that point. It's kind of a 50-50 deal, right? Because if you do strategic flexibility, you're not putting the credibility of the United States on the line in the event that China invades Taiwan. 
if you do strategic certainty, then China presumably gets a message that if they do attack Taiwan, you know, there will be a counterattack of some mm-hmm. kind and, and probably not an insignificant one. Do you think that it will be a military takeover as opposed to political and economic coercion that unfolds across many years? I think it'll be the latter. I think really? that there's not, why risk it, right? They can bleed it. And, you know, the semiconductor business, China is a huge client. In fact, China has been sort of overbuying to make less for the U.S. and therefore the supply chain issues for the auto industry and others. I think they just slowly roll it in. They were very patient with Hong Kong. I can't imagine why they wouldn't be on this one. On the other hand, you know, if Xi feels threatened by whatever political forces inside the country might threaten him, Mm -hmm. one way to get everybody to rally around the flag would be to take possession of Taiwan. Sure. But if they choose to go, then that's a magic moment in global politics, because if we don't respond, then we're not what we once were. Taiwan is obviously a story we'll be talking a lot about in the months ahead. But I know you're a big basketball fan, so let's switch our focus to the NCAA. We have to talk about college athletics in our financialization of everything storyline. That's right. The NCAA has long avoided paying student athletes, even as coaches in the schools themselves land massive paychecks. Student athletes think that they should get their share, and their case made it to the Supreme Court yesterday. What are some of the key arguments? So just to clarify, the Supreme Court is not issuing a definitive ruling on payment for players. What's happened here is that the NCAA is contesting a lower court ruling that would allow colleges to offer greater academic perks to Division I football and men's and women's basketball players, including scholarships for graduate degrees, paid internships, and computers, musical instruments, and other types of equipment related to education. The concern is that this could open the floodgates eventually to paying for players or paying players to play. Right. The court heard arguments from the NCAA, which argued that the distinct character of amateur sports is that the players are not paid for their play. This is an extraordinary story because there's so much money sloshing around in college athletics. Athletic coaches are the highest paid public employees in close to 40 states nationwide. 28 of those are in football. 12 of those are in basketball. Really? Yes. According to USA Today's data from as recently as December, NCAA football strength trainer salaries approach $1 million per year. Really? So the obvious question here is why why didn't we go to the gym? Right. If it's an amateur sport, why are the coaches paid so much, right? Mm -hmm. The NCAA loves to invoke this time-honored tradition of amateurism in sport and the 116-year history of the association, but that conveniently forgets the the rich valuation of uh, sports broadcast media licensing fees, endorsements from shoe companies. Athletic gear, yeah. Athletic gear, et cetera. Another point about this story that I think is very interesting that Supreme Court watchers made mention of, we hear so much about how the court is so sharply divided along ideological lines. In the opening arguments of this case, we saw that completely turned on its head. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh was one of the most vocal, openly skeptical of the NCAA's case. 
in favor of amateurism. Elena Kagan was also very skeptical. So it's not like a neat division along ideological lines. So what is it that's the kicker for the NCAA? Is it that they don't want to classify athletes as employees because then they would be on the hook for workers' compensation suits? Is that what this is about? Or is it just about wanting to milk these licensing fees for as much as possible and not doing anything to upset that apple cart? The latter. The latter. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in the scale of things, right? Yeah. Uh, Those contracts, if you have to divvy up some of the money, that's not good. Uh Better to have a longstanding tradition of amateur athletics continue. (laughs) Okay. We've got one more item in our financialization of everything storyline today, John, and that's the strong start we've seen in deal making around the world this year. The Financial Times reports that deals worth $1.3 trillion have been struck in the first quarter of 2021. That's more than in any quarter since at least 1980, and it's quite a rebound. Deal-making came to a near standstill at the start of the pandemic, but as you can see, rebounded very decisively. Yeah. I mean, in the U.S. alone, the deals increased 160% yes. over the same quarter last year, which is astonishing. We know one thing, obviously cheap money makes these things possible, but what other forces are driving this extraordinary explosion of deal-making? A lot of this is coming from the SPAC space, the special purpose acquisition company deal fest that has been going on for the past couple of years, especially here in the U.S. $172 billion in SPACs were struck here in the United States just in the first quarter, including the biggest SPAC acquisition to date with Tesla rival Lucid Motors going public through a $24 billion SPAC. So, Rebecca, I think I know what a SPAC is, but can you give me the kind of the 30-second explainer? Okay, so you and I are going to organize a news item SPAC. So that makes us the SPAC sponsors. We sell units in our SPAC for 10 bucks a pop. We list our acquisition company on one of the major exchanges with the stated intention that we are going to make an acquisition in a specific sector. We've got two years to make that deal. When we decide the company we want to buy, the unit holders can vote yes or no on the deal. And that will help our target company come to market quickly and at a defined price without having to do a roadshow. So our unit holders get paid, the target company gets paid, everybody's happy. Why do you think they've become so popular recently? Because everybody's happy. (laughs) Because everybody's at the table. It's almost like venture capital for amateurs, let's say. Retail investors can buy units in a SPAC, and it gives them this sense of power over a deal-making decision, like, wow, you're invited to this M&A party too. For companies that are acquired by a SPAC, as I said, it, it gives them a comparably quicker and easier way to go public without a lot of haggling or uncertainty about what the price is going to be. The exchanges are happy because more companies go public. That generates listing fees for them. It's this frothy area where so many people have something to gain by this relatively simple concept that it's become self-perpetuating. It's it's just going to keep going until it stops going, until there's some kind of spec blow up or something. You know, the saying these days is way too much money chasing way too few deals. That's right. So we have SPACs driving M&A. We got low interest rates. 
low interest rates. That's made it very cheap to fund deals with debt. We've had a lot of private equity, what is called dry powder, which is to say funds that have been raised by private equity funds that have yet to be invested, that are looking for targets. So when we say there's a lot of money sloshing around in the global economy, this is what we mean. I mean, Q1 of 2021 was the third straight quarter of global deal value in excess of $1 trillion. When we talk about, you know, the economy has been struggling due to COVID, in one corner of the universe called M&A activity, they've forgotten about COVID already. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, things came to a standstill, if you want to call it that, took a pause, took a breather with the onset of COVID, but then rebounded very quickly. I mean, a lot of these due diligence meetings, et cetera, went straight to Zoom. Right. And they picked up right where they left off. Oh, well, sadly, we've reached the end of News Items SPAC, and we're going to go to a break. After the break, we'll be talking to Ben Smith, the media columnist for The New York Times, the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and we'll be talking to him about the disruption of the media business, a subject that we will be coming back to a lot. Out of curiosity, why are you talking media on News Items? Is that world in disarray, or is that reporting on the world in disarray? It's important because it's news, right? It's the news business, and everybody has a stake in that. Mm -hmm. But it's probably the industry that is most easily understood how it was disrupted, right? The internet came along, social media came along, and just completely turned over the business model for uh, the print world and is gradually eating into the television news world. Yeah. And obviously radio. I mean, we're doing podcasts, right? So the disruption is not done. Is that what you're no, saying? No, no. It's ongoing for Uh-oh. sure. Well, I'm excited to hear this interview, John. Well, Ben, it's interesting because Ben had a thing about how advertising was coming back. Really? Uh, yeah. Digital, not not the print. (laughs) The print was down 40% this year or something. But he said that digital advertising was coming back and that that would be a revenue driver, which I was very surprised to hear. Anyway, we'll go to the break and we'll be back. Ben, welcome to News Items. Thank you for having me. Ben, I talked to Jill Abramson yesterday about the future of the Times after Trump and wanted to get your thoughts on the same subject. In terms of other revenues, other than sort of subscribing to the, quote, newspaper, end quote, the Times announced the other day that they'd hired a gaming creator to build out the games on the website. And then we were talking to Jill about this the other day that she said she had sort of aggressively advocated doing something with the cooking app going way back when, and since then it's finally really taken off, right? Yeah. So if you say games and cooking as sort of other revenue streams for the New York Times, are there third and fourth and fifth ones that you see? Or They have a lot of ambitions in audio. I mean, the Daily is just uniquely successful. Mm-hmm. There was talk of, you know, can we be the HBO for audio? Can we, like, what if you could get access to the Daily at 6 a.m. in the subscription app, but only at 9 a.m. free? You know, and, and it also in that app where a bunch of exclusive content, a bunch of great old stuff. I, I mean, I don't know. I think the, the trend that pulls in the other direction is that mm-hmm. like a year ago, everybody declared advertising dead. And then it just turned out not to be dead. Last quarter was a great quarter for advertising-driven media businesses. The Daily is a great advertising business. And I think there is now, again, this trade-off of, hey, wait, do we really want to put this thing behind a subscription wall? when our advertising business, which we had kind of left for dead, is thriving. 
So I think that's, for a lot of these media subscription products, suddenly this kind of countervailing force that people didn't quite see coming. Ads are back. Yeah. Well, that's good news. Yeah, it, totally. It's very good news. And it's they're back. I, the Their return has been masked a little bit because digital ads are back. Print ads are collapsing in a, I mean, They've been collapsing for a long time, but they had a catastrophic year last year. And so if you look at overall ad revenue, it may be down. Um, I am not a spokesman for the Times. I only work there, you know, and I and barely right, right, and read, but, but read the, uh, you know, read the annual report. And I think their print ad business declined 40% last year. If you Ooh. think about it, I mean, that Ooh. was for a century, the core business of this company. Yes. And it declined 40%. And it really was barely a blip in the news cycle or in their business. I mean, it's something that's been totally, we everyone saw coming and that they totally weathered that the market didn't care about. But it has masked the kind of fact that like the digital ad business, people are living online. It's not such a bad business for publishers at a moment when Google and Facebook are starting to get hemmed in and, you know, from in various ways. And right. so... I, I think that's a really that's something I'm really optimistic about. Just as a, somebody who hopes to continue to be employed by a media company, right, right. The paycheck clearing is always a good thing. Yep. One thing that I find myself inexplicably siding with Facebook uh, on the issue of it being a platform and people should have the right to say whatever they want to say on that platform. Are we at a point where Facebook and Twitter and Substack are going to tell us what we can say? I mean, doesn't that seem like insane to you? Um, was what specifically seem insane? Well, Twitter has kept Donald Trump off of Twitter, right? Now you can say, well, that's a private company, and that's their decision mm -hmm. to make. But it seems like, to me, that it's a corporation censoring Donald Trump. And whatever you think of Donald Trump, it seems to me he does have a First Amendment right to say whatever crazy thing he wants to say. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think it was an easy call in early January when people were running around the Capitol screaming for Nancy Pelosi's blood, having, you know, I mean, I think there was a real democratic crisis, right? And throwing him off Twitter where he had been in some ways inciting that mess he didn't actually have a right to use their servers to tell his followers to march to the Capitol. It was not a First Amendment issue. He was free to stand on any street corner he wanted and say it, or use his own massive email list or other things. That said, I basically agree with you that there's this sort of centralized decision-making in the hands of basically random executives, you know, that is obviously undemocratic and troubling. You know, and you saw everybody from Angela Merkel to AMLO in Mexico pretty panicked about Twitter doing that to Trump. Yeah, Navalny in Russia particularly. And Navalny, yeah. I mean, the situation in which these two or three major social media companies exercise massive, massive power over speech is the situation we're in. Within that situation, there's not, I don't think, a solution that, any, that you're going to wind up feeling great about. Like, the situation is the problem. I don't know. I, there was a march in Skokie, Illinois, when I was a kid, and I think it was in 1964, and some Nazis sort of goose-stepped around Skokie, Illinois, urging whatever it was they were urging, and they were defended by the ACLU. Did the ACLU argue that NBC was required to broadcast their speeches? Did you see them at home on broadcast television? I read it. I did not see it. Was the New York Times required to publish unedited speeches by the Nazi leaders? 
Oh, I didn't see that. No, I didn't. No, of course not. Like, that's the thing, right? Like, no one is really talking about his right to speech. It's his right to this massive, massive distribution engine that a private company controls. And the Nazis in Skokie weren't saying that they had a right to, say, half an hour a day of time on NBC where they could just have a block of time to talk about how great Hitler was. And nobody would have argued that. And now you have these new distribution companies in which Trump and his supporters argue that he has a constitutional right not just to speak, but to be distributed to millions. It's a different, I don't think it's analogous. Right. Which isn't to say that maybe he doesn't have that right. I just don't think it's really analogous. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. The idea of Mark Zuckerberg controlling what I can hear is deeply troubling, you know, and the notion that because I'm listening to Trump, I'm in some way endangered is you know, obviously ludicrous. So I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the two paths are somebody else exercise that you take that control away from Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and give it to somebody else the government in some form, right? Right. Or that you create a system in which it's just not possible to build this platform that big. And anybody who wants to speak can speak on a thousand smaller ones. Is it true that he's building his own Twitter? Is that a true thing? He has said he is. Although, you know, I think so much of what he did was really hacking the mainstream media and getting the attention of and through the media. Right. And I think if he's doing it off on some platform, only speaking to his own supporters, he really loses a lot of power. Right. Right now, he's sort of issuing statements, right? Like emails to your inbox kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's emailing many millions of people. And to me, where this gets scarier is when somebody says, well, the email company shouldn't be broadcasting this hate speech, right? You know, there are situations, child pornography is sort of the classic one, where you do say that. Right. Or you say, well, you know what, Amazon Web Services shouldn't be hosting this stuff. I mean, there's some point at which you can only host it on a box under your desk. And you get down into the plumbing of the internet in a way that I do think (laughs) is scary and people haven't always thought through. Yeah, that is a scary place, but sadly, we've run out of time. We'll talk about it again the next time. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. John, that was a great interview. Ben's a smart guy. Yeah, yes, he is. I used to uh, write a column for BuzzFeed. Ben recruited me to write a political column for BuzzFeed in 2012, so... We go back a ways. What was it called? What was your column called? You know, Politics by John Ellis or something. I confidently predicted that Mitt Romney would win over Obama. So, Really? Yeah. It was, it's all right. It was a little bit wrong. Not, not much wrong, <laughs> but a little bit. A couple of states, you know. <laughs> okay, glad to hear that part of the story. John, let's move on to science and tech headlines. First, a Nobel Prize-winning pioneer in biochemistry retired in December, obviously before we were podcasting, but we think it's worth mentioning him and his work. Hamilton Smith helped discover DNA-cutting molecular scissors, which allow for genetic engineering. This discovery hastened the creation of human insulin and even the development of some tests and vaccines for COVID-19. One of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. Just an extraordinary man. At the time in the late 90s, which is when I met him, The NIH was doing the mapping of the genome by hand. Wow. Okay. So they did what's called shotgun sequencing. They took all of the genetic material and they threw it up against the wall and then they recombined it using the computing power that they had. Mm -hmm. And that accelerated the mapping of the human genome. Therein began the genomic revolution. We stand for the man. 
Hamilton Smith. Exactly. Next, for another story that began in the 60s, this year's Turing Award goes to the two creators of a compiler, which laid the groundwork for computers to understand software written by humans. The New York Times reports that Alfred Aho and Jeffrey Ullman met on their first day of grad school at Princeton in 1963 while waiting in line to register. A former student of Aho's tells the Times that without the duo's work, we wouldn't have smartphone apps or even cars in their modern, digitally connected form. We stand for Aho and Ullman, too. We do. Hats off. Totally. Well, John, I think the American public has heard enough from us for one day. Well, they can hear more from us if they Google Alice News Items and Substack, or if they go to investableuniverse.com. Home of the future News Items SPAC and ETF. And we should mention, you know, when we talk about these subjects on the News Items podcast, that's only a tiny sliver of what you get on the, the actual newsletter site. Thank you. You get the intel, you get the Thank analysis. You. You get the early morning scoop. Log on, more informed than any of your peers. Ooh, one more thing. We are going to post tomorrow a roughly one-hour interview, unedited. Holy moly. With the great Jim Cramer. CNBC. CNBC. We did it earlier today, and uh, we think you will enjoy it. It'll be up there, obviously, forever, I guess. But I think if you have the time this weekend, Jim is just fabulous. Can't wait. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back Monday with more of the news from our three major storylines, the financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology. See you then. Thank you very much for listening.